Thank you for the invitation. I, I am really glad to be with you yet again. And um, you know, there's there's places that I go and am able to speak, and uh, it's always nice to come back to places where I see familiar faces. I may not remember all the names. Uh, but I see faces that I know, and I'm glad to be back with you. We are going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, but we're actually going to be through the entire writing, or at least the first part of Romans tonight, but we will light on 8, 1 through 17 for the most part. Uh, I've been to prison many times. I suspect there are some in here who have been to prison more than I have, but I've been there. I've been to uh, prisons in, been to prison in Nashville, been to prison in Mason, uh, went to 201 Poplar, been there. I've been to um, Penal Farm. Uh, I've been to, uh, been to the prison in, uh, in the, they call it a jail, in Bartlett. Uh, I've been to these places because um, I went there to see people. And every time I walk in and and see someone in in a jail or a prison, one of the things that I'm very much aware of as I walk in is I'll only be here for a short period of time. I've yet to be in a jail or a prison that I thought, you know, I could live here. I've never, I've never experienced a place where I thought, I'd like to stay. I've been on lots of vacations in my lifetime. I suspect there's people in here who've been on more vacations than I have, but I've been on vacations and there's been lots of places that we've gone that I thought, I could live here. But jail? Prison? No. There's also the reality that when I leave that place, I know I'm leaving behind a person who's not leaving anytime soon. And the reality of that is, as I walk out, there's an appreciation for the fact that I am free, free to leave, free to live my life, free to engage the world, and the person I left behind has lost their freedom. When we start thinking about freedom, I think a number of images come to our mind, but one of those images is the idea of being able to do whatever you want to do. And I don't know about you, but I learned a long time ago that doing whatever you want to do seems to be free until somebody slaps your hand. And then you realize, I can't do that. Because if I end up doing whatever I want to do, and I call that freedom, I will invariably invade somebody else's freedom. I was five years old the first time I stole something. Yeah, I said first time. Um, I was visiting, we were living in a rural area in Kentucky, and I was visiting a little old lady next door. Now, I, 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 again, I figured there are people in here who have lived harder lives than I've lived, but we were, we were impoverished. Uh, Dad got laid off four to six months out of the year. We lived on his unemployment checks. And there, wasn't just, there just wasn't a whole lot of money. 
uh, $29 a week. That's what we lived on when I was five years old. From the time I was three to five, that was it. $29 a week. So we didn't have a whole lot of things in our house that I really wanted. Um, one, I really, <laughs> on winter days, it would have been nice to have a heater. Uh, but we, we just didn't have a whole lot. And I was next door visiting this little old lady. Uh, she might have been in her 40s, but I'm five. She's old. And, <laughs> and I, I'm visiting this, this little old lady, and she leaves the room where we're in, and she goes, she decides that she's going to go get me something to drink. I don't know. And right there on her coffee table is a bowl of fruit. And I snatched a banana just about as fast as anybody could and hustled out the door. Because we didn't have bananas at our house. And I really wanted a banana. And, you know, I went out into the yard, left her house, walked out, went next door to my house and ate about half the banana before I started feeling guilty. And then I thought, well, I'm halfway through. Um, might as well finish it off. But nonetheless, nonetheless, the, the thing was, you see, I did what I wanted to do and I impinged on somebody else's freedom, didn't I? When we start thinking about freedom, we have in mind this idea, do whatever you want to do, but that's not reality. That's not the real view of freedom. Freedom has some, something attached to it. But the idea of freedom is to cast off, to be able to cast off that which will weight you down. When I leave jails or prison, I, I understand that I have a certain amount of freedom that that person that I just visited does not have. But I also recognize that when the time comes, they too can be set free and choose to live a life devoid of that which has weighted them down, if they choose it. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And with that expulsion, the churches in Rome, the congregations in Rome, we know there were a number of house churches there, the congregations in Rome lost part of their leadership. But those who remained were Gentiles. And the Gentiles began to experience a little bit of freedom. They didn't wish ill for their Jewish brothers and sisters, but the reality was they had very different views of, of life. A common faith, but different views. A few years later, Claudius, before he was deposed, allowed the Jews to come back to Rome. And when they came back to Rome, of course, they went back to the congregations where they had left. And for several years, the Gentiles enjoyed their freedom. And then the Jews came back and began to impose their view that freedom came at a greater cost. That they needed to keep certain food laws and they needed to keep certain holidays. And they needed to uh, more closely adhere to the Jewish law in order to please God. 
And the result of that created a great deal of tension in the body of Christ in Rome. Paul writes the letter to the Romans in answer to that tension. He is trying to help Jews and Gentiles come back together. It's written in a very calm spirit. It's, it's, uh, uh, many people have said, well, it's very close to Galatians. It is, except Galatians is a very uh, slap-your-face kind of writing. And this one is very calm, very peaceful. It's intended to be just kind of a, a pleading with the people and an explanation to the people about how they can work together. Now, the practical application of all of that doesn't occur until chapter 12 and following, and then really chapters 14 and 15, where he gets into the meat of, this is how you're going to work together in a practical way. But prior to all of that, he is laying the foundation for what he's going to write in chapter, chapters 12 and following. But in those early chapters, he is setting up what he knows is the case. God initiated a plan through both groups so that they could come to faith in Jesus. The path of that plan was very different. For the Jews, the plan went through Moses and the written law. For the Gentiles, the plan went through an internal law. He will talk about in Romans chapter 1 that for the Gentiles, God wrote on their hearts. He he told them what He wanted. They knew it instinctually. They didn't need a written law. It was there. But for the Jews, there was a written law. And He brings those two together. And and sometimes you have to kind of keep up with how He's switching back and forth. But chapter 1 is more toward the Gentiles. Chapter 2 is more toward the the, the Jews. Chapter 3 at the beginning is about to the Jews. Chapter 4 starts pulling it all together. But here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter which path you take. The path of the internal writing of God's Word on your heart or the path of the external written Word, the result is the same. Death. Spiritual loss, disconnection from God, shame. It's all the same. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The outcome's the same. Separation from God that requires a Savior. Someone who will come and somehow unbelievably bring both groups together in a common faith. Faith in the Savior. So look at, let's look at, uh, to begin with, chapter 3. Verse 27. Again, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but prior to all of this, he's been talking to the Gentiles in chapter 1, primarily the the Jews in chapters 2 and the beginning part of chapter 3. And now he's bringing it all all together in verses 21 and following as he talks about faith and that faith and the beginning of chapter 4. And so at the end of chapter 3, he's talking to the Jews and that, that faith doesn't come through the law. 
If you want faith, it can't come through the law. It's got to come somewhere else. It's got to be focused somewhere else besides on the written law. And so he says in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. You can't boast about your salvation in Christ because you had nothing to do with it except accepting what God has already done for you. He says, uh, you, you can't boast on the observance of the law, but you can boast about your faith. You can boast about what Jesus did. He says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about Abraham and what he's doing there. He's, he's, he's saying, hey, guess what? Abraham wasn't under a written law. You know, Abraham came before Moses. So Abraham is a representation of the path for the Gentiles. Moses doesn't mean anything to the Gentiles. But if you're talking about something internal, Abraham's your guy. Because Abraham believed, just like the Gentiles did in those days, believed in multiple gods. And then when the God calls him to come and follow, Abraham says, yes, I will do that. And so what does Paul say? How was Abraham justified? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you saying? Well, just like the Gentiles. Faith in what God has done for them brings them into relationship with Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. This is written to the Jews. We're going to look at a similar passage about the Gentiles, but this is written to the Jews. Start at verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if, one, if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by a written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Uh, then look over at chapter 1. I'll, I'll come back and we'll unpack that in just a moment. Chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, chapter 1, verse 24, this is to the Gentiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires for their, of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Uh, here, here's the point. Jew or Gentile, they, there's a problem. The Gentiles have a problem because their heart is bad. The internal heart where the, the Word of God is written on their internal heart. No written code, but the Word of God is there. God created it that way. He put it there. They have a problem. They've got a bad heart. Paul says the Jews also have bad hearts, except they're thinking they can solve that heart by external action. They can solve their heart problem by external action. Keep the law of Moses and everything's going to be fine. Paul says, no, you never understood. It was never about the external law. It was about the internal heart. You've got a heart problem too. Two different paths, same problem. Jews and Gentiles alike have bad hearts. Everybody with me so far? Listen, listen. 
This is not only good theology. It's going to get really good and practical in just a moment. But here's the problem. Both Jews and Gentiles, Paul's trying to heal the division between the two groups. Both Jews and Gentiles have a problem. It's called a heart problem. You know what they need? They need surgery. They need to have a heart transplant. I'm not making this up. 229. No, a man is a Jew if, one is one, if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Paul says, God's Spirit's got to cut on your heart. He's got to carve away your heart. Now, I put it in terms of a transplant because we understand heart transplants. I, I, I don't know if anybody here has had a family member who's had a heart transplant. I haven't. But uh, none of mine have died of heart attacks. You know, they've all died of cancer. But anyway, uh, the idea is if you've got a bad heart and you need a new heart, that new heart's got to come from somebody else. What does Paul say the Jews need? They need a new heart. What does he say about the Gentiles? They need a new heart. Where's the heart going to come from? The Jews said, if I do the right things, I'll get a new heart. Paul says, uh-uh, that's not how you get a new heart. The Gentiles said, well, if I get close to what I think God wants me to do, I'll be fine. No, that, you need a new heart. And if you're going to get a new heart, you've got to have a master surgeon. And that is the Holy Spirit. 229, read it closely. Who does the operation? Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. You know, whenever you get a, uh, when a person has a heart transplant, they have to take drugs in order to keep the heart. Do you know this? Shake your head yes, and I'll keep going. Okay, good. Um, they, they, they have to have medication in order to keep the heart because the body, the body, the, the mind keeps saying, it, that's, not, that's not my heart. And they try to, the body, the head, tries to reject the heart. And so doctors have to give them medication so that the body gets fooled into accepting the heart. You with me? So, so here, here's what happens spiritually. We run into the same problem. Spirit of God's got to do a heart operation. But we wake up from the operation, spiritually speaking, figured, I'm not saying, you know, but we wake up from the operation. And we still got old thinking. Because even though the Spirit has circumcised the heart, even though the Spirit has cut away on the heart, even though the Spirit has done the, the, the wondrous spiritual transplant that needs to happen, we wake up with old thinking. How do I know that's a problem? Because that's what Paul keeps talking about. By the time he gets to chapter 12, he's trying to resolve all of that, but he's having a hard time convincing both Jews and Gentiles, you guys got to get along because you've got the same problem and you've got the same solution. Your path looks very different, but the path only indicates that without the solution, there's only death. And God is trying to give you a new heart through His Holy Spirit and you're rejecting it.
Look over at chapter 7. Here's how I know. Here's how I know that the Jews, and Paul picks on the Jews a whole lot more than the Gentiles in this writing. Probably because Paul's Jewish. And probably because he's, his whole ministry or much of his ministry has been trying to convince Jews they got they to think differently. Gentiles were like, show us. We're, we're, right, we're right there with you, Paul. You, you saying I can give all this up and, and come into righteousness and faith in Jesus and, and I'm free? God has forgiven me? Yep. I'm all in. The Jews, on the other hand, kept going, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And Paul keeps, I, I, I dealt with that. God's already dealt with all of that. All right. So here you go, 7-6. By now, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's talking to the Jews. And he's telling <laughs> You don't need the written law. God gave you a new heart. Yeah, but you know that written law, there's just benefit to that written law. Well, we want to we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We want to serve Spirit way, not law way. We want to serve Spirit way. If a person had a heart transplant... I'm talking about literally, physically. If they had a heart transplant and they woke up from the operation and the first words out of their mouth were, can I get a pizza? You're, 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 the doctor would look at them and go, that's what got you here to begin with. Yeah, but a pizza sure sounds good. And we, we would say to that person, listen, you've got, a, you've got a second chance at life here. Somebody had to die. You do know that, right? Somebody had to die in order for you to get a second chance. Ooh, is that not a spiritual application? Somebody had to die in order for you to get a second chance. And here's the problem. You're acting like you're still living with the first heart. Give me some pizza. It takes a while to get the thinking to move in the direction of the new heart. Physically, people take medication to convince their brains they don't need to reject what they've got. But they've got to take it the rest of their life. They never stop taking that medication. Because as sure as they stop taking it, the brain's going to tell them, you don't need that heart. If you, if you, uh, I'm going to make the plain or, or the subtle obvious here in just a moment, but whew, if you can't see the spiritual application to all of this yet, hang on. We're getting to Romans chapter 8, okay? So Paul gives a full detail about what the Spirit does when the Spirit gives us a new heart, and that's Romans chapter 8. The entirety, I, we, we, don't, we don't have enough time to unpack the entire chapter. I, I, I'm not sure I've got enough time to do 17 verses, but 
we're going we're gonna to take a shot at it. So what does it mean? How do we live if we've got this new heart that the Spirit has given us? And Paul says, 7-6, we want to live, we want to serve in the new way of the Spirit. If that's what we want to do, how do we do that? I took Harvey Floyd at Lipscomb in my college career for... um, study on Romans. I was, uh, I'm guessing I was uh, 19, maybe, 18, 19, 20, somewhere along in there. And as I listened to him unpack Romans and work through Romans, I was exposed to thoughts that I'd never been exposed to before. And I was challenged to think about some things differently. And, and as I listened to him exegete the passages and run through the, the passages, I began to see something of what I now know, and I didn't know what to call it back then, but I began to see something of what I now know as freedom. Release. This passage, I'm 63, this passage has just been, since that class with Harvey Floyd, this passage has just spoken volumes to me in my lifetime. And I've come back to it over and over and over again, and and in 10 minutes' time that's left for me, I can't possibly have the right words for it to become powerful for you. I've had a a few years to think on it. Let's start. We've got a great song that comes out of 8-1. Right? You know that song? Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore. Oh, wow. Um, Everyone knows probably that whenever you see the word therefore, it's a beginning summary statement for whatever's come prior, uh, immediately prior to it or even large, uh, a larger context. In this case, the therefore uh, probably goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 7. But therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can we just stop right there? there, There's so much powerful stuff that Paul's going to write from, from right there, but that's a summary statement. And that summary statement is supposed to gain the attention of both Jew and Gentile. There's no condemnation. Well, wait a minute. Let's let's go back. Review. The path for the Gentiles was an internal heart problem. It was a path that said, I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, God doesn't matter. If there is a God, He doesn't matter. And I don't believe there really is a God, so it doesn't matter what I do. That path led to what? Guess what? It, guess that word. Guess that word. Guess it. Condemnation. 
That's what it led to. Let's go to the other, other path, the path of the Jew. The path of the Jew was, it was an external problem. It was, I trust what I do, therefore God will give me a new heart because of what I do. And, and, and proof of the new heart is everything I do. And Paul says, guess what? That gets you, what else? What, what does it get you? Go ahead. Pop quiz. Condemnation. Two different paths, same outcome. Therefore, there is no For who? For those in Christ Jesus. And here's what we do in the head. But what about But what about woke up from my heart transplant? How soon can I have a hamburger? How soon can I have Pepsi? How soon can I have a pizza? How soon can I? That's old thinking. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what about, can we just stop? When Paul's making a summary statement, he doesn't add an exception. Not here. I started out by talking about the reality that freedom has some limits to it. So I understand that that this may make you uncomfortable but let's just stop. If, if Paul had stopped right here, he didn't, I know, there's more here, I got it. But if he had stopped right here, would it have made it easier for you to go, Whew. Or are you just waiting for the exceptions? Listen, I know there's more. I know, and there are exceptions. He will talk about the exceptions. You know what the exceptions are? They all revolve around one thing, going back to the old way of thinking. That's what the exceptions are. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What, what, are there some exceptions? What if I... Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul's not... Paul, he spent the entirety of chapter six, chapter 6 and 7 talking about how sin has been taken away, that you're no longer a slave to sin, that, that, that sin, God has dealt once and for all with your sin problem. Well, what if I sin? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Well, yeah, but, you know, now we've got another problem. It's called perfectionism. And that's a problem. Because that's an old way of thinking. i got to get it all right. We're all Gentiles, but we think like Jews. i got, I got to do it all right. Otherwise, that, that's, that's old thinking. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 17 times in these 17 verses... Paul is going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit 17 times. One more review. I got, I got four minutes, got to hurry. One more review. Who gave you the new heart? The Holy Spirit. Here in this text, verses 9 and 10, Paul equates the Spirit with Christ. Who gave you the new heart? 
You could say Jesus did, you could say the Spirit did, and you would be right in both counts. You could say God did it. You could be right there too because they're all together. They're all together. And, and so wh wherever you got your heart, God, okay. If, if uh, saying Holy Spirit makes you uncomfortable, then say Jesus gave me my new heart. But I'm telling you, Paul says the, the Spirit gave you the new heart. And now in 17 verses, he's just going to explode on what the Spirit does. And here's what the Spirit does. Ooh, real quick. Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free. You want, you want to know real freedom? It only comes through the Spirit. It doesn't come through the law. It cannot, cannot, cannot come through trying to do all the right things. That's no freedom. Are you saying... I am not saying you've got permission to go do the wrong thing. Read chapter 6, verse 15 and following. You'll get, the, you'll get the message. Paul doesn't even say, go do whatever you want to do. That's not freedom. But freedom in the Spirit means I don't have to worry about my sin anymore. I don't have to worry about the guilt anymore. I don't have to worry about condemnation anymore. It's done. It's over. There is none. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit. We live according to the Spirit. That's what Paul says. We are listening to the Spirit. We are cooperating with the Spirit. We are engaging with the Spirit. We are wanting what the Spirit wants. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. I want what the Spirit wants. That's what a new heart does. The new heart says, hey, what I really want is not what I think I want. What I really want, I don't want the pizza. What I want is the second chance. And what I want with that second chance is to live longer. And what I really want, chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of death, wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is what? I want to live forever. And a new heart guarantees I'll live forever. Is that word guarantee okay with you? <laughs> because in Ephesians 2, that's exactly the word that Paul uses to describe what the Spirit does for the believer in Christ. He guarantees that you belong to Christ. Chapter 8, verse 6. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. We talk about peace all the time. Listen, listen, when you walk by the Spirit, you have real peace. Galatians chapter 5 says that's one of the, the fruit of the Spirit. That's one of the things He's trying to give us. Love, joy, peace, peace, peace. You, you want peace? Peace doesn't mean the absence of war. Peace means calmness in the face of it. Did I say that too fast? You want real peace? See, see, if you're trying to live by, by the law, if you're trying to do all the right things, there's no peace. I messed up today. I got, I got to do... I, I, oh, uh, I, I, guilt, shame, death, condemnation. But by the Spirit, are you saying you, have, you don't feel anything when you do the wrong? That's not what I said. I didn't say I didn't feel anything. I still have regret, repentance. I got it. But I'm free. And I want, I want what the Spirit wants because i got a new heart. And, I, and the second chance means I don't want the pizza. I don't want that. i got a second chance. Uh, 
16 and 17. I'm, I'm down at the end. I, I got to go to the end. Uh, let's start at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Oh, Living by the law puts you in fear. Living by the spirit sets you free. Living by the law puts you in fear. I did the wrong thing. Somebody's going to know that I'm so embarrassed. All of that is, is first heart thinking. Second heart thinking says, I did the wrong thing and I'm going to repent. And I'm going to, in fact, if people find out about it, I'm going to admit how good God is. Because he's already forgiven me. Spirit of sonship and by him, the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The word father there is a very intimate term. It is the term that toddlers use with their daddies. In Paul's language, Abba is the same thing as our da, 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 da. Abba, 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 Abba. Da, da. Abba, Abba. Da, da. Abba, Abba. It's what toddlers say to their children, and when they get old enough to be able to say it real distinctly, they say it proudly and intimately. To their fathers calling them Abba, Dad. The new heart from the Spirit gives us the privilege to talk about a close relationship with God. I didn't finish. Got to stop. But you read through the rest of the passage. And when it gets down to the end, verses 28 and following, just keep looking at what the Spirit's doing. And when you get all the way to the end, 38 and 39, when he says there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, focus on the word nothing and tell me what is included in nothing. Because Paul's a master at drawing little parentheses. There is no condemnation. Nothing can separate. Two negatives on the either end is Paul's way of saying, hey, if you didn't get it the first time, let me summarize it for you one more time. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Spirit wants to give you a new heart. Somebody has to die in order for you to have a transplant. In the physical world, somebody has to die. And their heart has to be taken and given to someone else whose heart has deteriorated and they need a new heart. Well, guess what? For us to get a new heart, somebody had to die. You say, well, listen, this story is so old. It's 2,000 years old. Don't glance over it. For you to have a new heart, somebody had to die. And you couldn't have a, net, a second chance with God unless somebody had died. Jesus died. And in his death, he provides forgiveness of sin. And when we come to him in our baptism, God says, I will forgive your sin. And I will give you, Acts 2.38, I'll forgive your sin and you'll receive what? The Holy Spirit. 
And what does the Holy Spirit do? Gives you a new heart. Ah. So that, that, that reception of the Spirit is pretty important. You can't get the new heart without the Spirit. Where do you get the Spirit? Baptism. That's what Peter said. Get the Spirit at baptism. So we offer this invitation. Perhaps there's someone today who's ready to say, I, I, I need a new heart. Someone here will assist you in your baptism and you'll, you'll receive the Spirit who will come in and carve away the old and give you the new. Maybe there's someone who is saying, you know, I've been think- I may be Gentile, but I've been thinking like a Jew. I've been thinking, I just, I got to do all the right things in order for God to be impressed enough to keep me close to Him. And there's no freedom in that. You're in jail. You're in a spiritual jail. And you're stuck there without understanding that the new heart sets you free. So maybe we could pray with you about the new heart. If you'd like to uh, respond, we're going to stand and sing this song. You walk down one of these aisles. Let's stand. Let's sing.